Hello, Mainly fans. We've got a great show for you today. A conversation about what the creation of the American Republic meant specifically for New England women. Historians have done a great deal of important work lately, asking what the shift from being subjects in the British Empire to citizens in the American Republic actually meant. And, for reasons you'll see, one important set of questions emerging from that transition involved the legal status of women. Today's guest has written a book that will be a vital part of that conversation for many years to come. In other news, I'm excited to announce that Mainly History will be gaining a co-host this fall. Fear not, the sparkling insights and delightful theme music will still be a part of the show, only now someone else will be shaping the topics and ideas driving the conversation along with yours truly. I look forward to bringing this second season of Mainly History to you soon. But for now, we've got a revolution to discuss. So let's do this. My guest today is Jackie Beatty, Assistant Professor of History at York College. Jackie, welcome to Mainly History. Thanks for having me. I am very excited. I was waiting with much anticipation for the release of your book, Independence, Women and the Patriarchal State in Revolutionary America. And not only that, published by the same press that took a flyer on me. Uh, with my first book as well as part of the Early American Places series. Yeah. To begin with, when we talk, you're talking about revolutionary America. What is your time frame for this? Yeah, so I really wanted to kind of investigate whether the American Revolution made any kind of significant changes in women's lives. So I kind of expanded my chronology to start around 1750 and end around 1820 so I could get a sense of the before and after effects of the conflict as well. Very cool. That I'm really glad that you just came out with that question about, you know, what the American Revolution meant for women uh, and for the terminology that, as you and I well know, but maybe not of all of our listeners do, even the terminology women's rights was not really in current usage among English speakers until the 1790s, thanks to Mary Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of women, even if Mm -hmm. the ideas were there, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, verbalized. So thinking about, yeah, what the American Revolution did for the, the rights of women. Mm-hmm. Thinking big picture, because you you talk about the patriarchal state in mm-hmm. revolutionary America. And I don't think anybody is surprised by to be told, oh, you know, as my students would say, yeah, the, the 1700s, the sexism was rampant. Great. <laughs> but okay, on a practical level, what do you mean by the patriarchal state? What does it look like in terms of the operation of the law? 
Yeah. And I, I actually would like to argue, as I do in the book, that the state, when referring to the state, doesn't have to just mean officials in power in the government, judges, legislators, things like that. Um, but it, that in this context, it can be any kind of institution that's operating in people's lives, civil lives. Um, and, and in terms of patriarchal, these are institutions that are headed, run, controlled by largely elite white male figures who institute some kind of regime or enforce expectations along patriarchal lines. So it certainly does include, you know, state legislatures and county courts that I discuss in the book, but it can also include um, local almshouse officials, aldermen in the city communities. Um, and there's a, a religious organization that I discuss um in Philadelphia that is seeking to uh, reform so-called fallen women. Um, and I would argue that they too are part of this patriarchal state apparatus as well. That makes sense. Yeah. Thinking about this in operation and turning to, you know, well-known Massachusetts figures um, and, and New Englanders, mm -hmm. Abigail Adams famously mm -hmm. wrote a letter to her husband, John, in the spring of 1776 when he was in the Continental Congress, uh, urging him and the Congress to remember the ladies. And she mentioned that, you know, all men would be tyrants if they could. Mm -hmm. Now, my students frequently take this to just, they go straight to, oh, well, she wanted the vote, right? She's talking about women voting. And it takes a lot of sort of unwinding all this for them to appreciate what else she's talking about. So thinking, thinking about, what Abigail was talking about in 1776, thinking about how laws and customs were operating in, say, the colony of Massachusetts, what kind of reforms was Abigail concerned with that maybe didn't even involve voting per se? Well, I think number one is education, access okay. to education, right? Um, mm -hmm. This is something that really expands for largely upper middle class and elite white women in the post-revolutionary era, because okay. there's a, a great concern among leaders that, you know, the Republic is not going to survive. Historically, Republics don't survive uh, for very long. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, they're, they're looking for ways to cultivate kind of devoted citizenship, which is, is voluntary, right. As opposed to subjectship in an English context, which is mandatory, right? Your devotion to the king is part of your identity. Um, so how in creating a national culture do you um, kind of cultivate devoted citizenship, right? And part of this or, or part of the project is to educate elite young white women so that when they are mothers, they can pass these values on to their sons who are going to be the future voters and leaders of the United States and their daughters who are going to then fill their shoes and be as, as historian Linda Kerber calls uh, them Republican mothers, right? So mm -hmm. we do see education expanding for women in this period. There are some cases where marital rights uh, are expanding as well, um, especially divorce in a number of states. Um, of course, I don't know if your if your listeners are aware, but divorce was actually legal in Massachusetts, um, basically from the the founding of the Massachusetts Bay and Plymouth colonies, because Congregationalists believed that um, marriage was a civil contract, not a religious one. But Pennsylvania so is a good example. It was legal in contrast yes. to most other areas. Yes, okay. that's right. Um, but uh, 
during and in the wake of the revolution, we see a number of other states liberalizing their divorce laws, among them uh, Pennsylvania, which I also study. And there are a number of historians who have argued that the kind of Republican and rights rhetoric of the revolution influenced uh, the expansion of access to divorce, right? It's still relatively rare, um, but it is easier uh, to obtain in a lot of cases. Um, I, ha I had a follow-up question about that mm -hmm. for how easy it was, because again, as uh, you know, as you're you're well aware, for for women in the 18th century, even way more than it is today, and sadly it still is, you know, uh, divorce and a woman's safety in marriage was an issue of life and death. Yes. Uh, in 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 many cases, at a time when you know the definitions of what constituted spousal abuse or rape within marriage were mm -hmm. certainly by today's standards appallingly low, and yes. so. How difficult or easy was it for, say, a woman in Massachusetts or Maine to obtain a divorce in uh, after the American Revolution in, say, 1790? Yeah, I mean, it depends on a number of factors. One, you know, a woman would have to be able to have access to the court in some way, right? Does she is she familiar with someone, or does she know anyone who could help her submit a petition, right? Um, she would also have to consider you know, I hate to put it this simply, but the, the pros and cons, right? Because yes, a lot of women suffered abuses, but if they were divorced from their husbands, separated in such a way to ensure their physical safety, many of them would not have the financial security for themselves or their children to survive, right? right. There are certain circumstances that in, in the context of Massachusetts would permit um, divorces. So this includes adultery, certainly uh, desertion, as well as the kind of physical and sometimes emotional abuse, right? Um, it, it Usually these two things are combined in women's petitions. Um, but as you say, it's not as simple as asserting abuse. Women have to not only kind of testify that they have been abused physically, emotionally, et cetera, but then also indicate that they had done nothing to deserve this abuse because there were certain aspects of the English common law of which the United States inherited quite a bit that kind of created a permission structure for certain kinds of domestic abuse, wherein a woman, a wife was seen as um, deserving that kind of abuse. So they had to not only kind of detail the abuse that they experienced, but also assert and provide evidence to the fact and usually witness testimony that they had done nothing to deserve that abuse. Um, mm. So they're, they're really difficult sources to read. I can imagine. You mentioned financial security. And so a term that often pops up uh, and some, some of our listeners might be familiar with it, others not, but one term frequently brought up is coverture. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, you know, for many married women in English common law, this was, you know, one of the defining features of their lives, legally mm -hmm. speaking. Could you explain briefly to our listeners what coverture entails, what this legal status means? Yes, the, the system of coverture kind of comes from uh, Blackstone's commentaries on the law of England, um, his kind of perspective on the English common law um, customs. And it essentially argued that men and women were kind of one uh, legal unit in marriage. And in that unit, the husband was the head, right? Talk about the, the patriarchal state, right? Mm -hmm. um, a woman in turn was considered femme covert or a covered woman who was 
dependent and to be kind of submissive, subservient, obedient to her husband. And in exchange for that dependence on him, he would provide for her in different ways, especially uh, financially, because she was not meant to have her own legal identity within marriage uh, or own her own property independent of her husband, right? So with that um, kind of legal handicap, as it were, women then are meant to be financially provided for by their spouses. And I mean, this helps to explain, although we're getting ahead of ourselves, why a later generation of American women were so involved in the temperance movement and targeting Mm -hmm. saloons, because if the male, uh, whether he's the sole breadwinner or main breadwinner or whatever, uh, if the male of the family goes and drinks and spends away the family earnings that uh, the wife does not legally have the power to stop him from doing so, then one of the socially acceptable ways for her to you know, exert some form of autonomy or try to stop him is by saying, well, let's shut the saloons down for, for preying on our family. Right. And actually, interestingly enough, Massachusetts, along with both Pennsylvania and South Carolina, have a legal me- uh, legal mechanism meant to try to remedy some of these situations. Mm-hmm. Within coverture, married women could become uh, what was called femme soul traders. So they were in part considered femme soul legally while still married, that is, uh, as a single woman, not a married woman insofar as they were able to conduct business um, on their own, in their own name, separate from their husband's legal identity. This happened over the course of the 18th century. Um, It required very special permissions, including that husbands had to consent to this. Um, Mm. But the, the documentation, the source material that exists shows that in husband's consent to this, these, these sources, they often admit that they are inadequate providers in various ways and or their wives are better providers. Um, So in that way, women do have a kind of independent legal financial identity, but still remain married and dependent on men in other ways. Interesting. This is a good indicator that the question of, okay, what did the American Revolution change for women is too broad of a question. Oh, of course, (laughs) it applies differently, arguably, most importantly, whether a woman is single or married. uh, And then, of course, also uh, black and white and then some Mm -hmm. other status indicators. Yes. So uh, beginning with let's just start with with marriage. So for not enslaved married women, and let's look at, say, Massachusetts and, and other New England states. What does the American Revolution mean for their status as married women? Yeah, I think um, most scholars of the period of women in the American Revolution tend to argue that very little changed for women, that the American Revolution was actually not all that revolutionary um, in in women's lives, um, regardless often of kind of class, race, um, region, all of these things, marital status. But what I found in my research in investigating these largely petitions to uh, county courts and to state legislatures, even though there's a lot of kind of repetition of these expectations of women's dependence on men and their dependence on the state, What does change is the way that they are 
claiming various forms of aid and assistance from the state, something that women and men had been doing for generations in Anglo-American history. What starts around the early 1770s, as early as I've been able to see in the source material, is that women start to talk about aid that they are owed based on their status as the legal dependents of men. They start Mm. to talk about this as a right and claim it as a right. So what's interesting is that none of this is new, right? What they're claiming is not new and how they're claiming it is is what changes. Um, The language that they use to claim old rights um, as rights for the first time is what I see as the most kind of significant shift in my research. And it may seem really small that women just start to talk about themselves as having these kinds of rights because they're not the rights that you kind of started the conversation with. They're not the right to vote. In many cases, they're they're not the right to have an independent legal identity separate from their husband. But women's recognition that they are citizens to some degree that have rights is a necessary foundation for the kind of rights that they will uh, push for later, including suffrage and and even up to the current day, right? Women first had to recognize that they were citizens deserving of rights um, and claim that for themselves before they could um, persist in pushing for more rights and more expansive rights. So you will be familiar with this logic that I will lay out because I think it's, it's heavily inspired by, I believe she was your advisor, uh, Rosemary Zagari. Yes. Um, Yes. And so, you know, and who am I? I'm an enormous fan of of her work. And she would have, you know, to kind of paraphrase from much of her career, she would have probably to condense said something like, well, the American Revolution in part creates something of a contradiction, the female citizen, Mm -hmm. in the sense that to be a, a woman subject of the crown is not really a contradiction because subjects are inherently dependent on mm-hmm. somebody, mm-hmm. even if it's just the monarch and they're right. interdependent. Whereas a citizen is supposed to be in their fullest expression, right? Or fullest form independent to be able to make unselfish decisions for the good of the community. Right. 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 And that so that civic virtue. Yes. Yes. The civic virtue, you're supposed to be unselfish and yes, property matters, but only, only the extent that property allows you to be independent. Right. And, uh, and to therefore make these unselfish decisions. And so the American revolution, one of its principal legacies is less about in the short term changing women's legal status, but in creating this contradictory situation of what do we do with all of these women citizens who are dependent by virtue of either law or just fact? Yeah. And I mean, um, Linda Kerber has written about this as well uh, in her book, um, No Constitutional Right to Be Ladies, about Mm. the the, um, kind of complicated nature of women's citizenship in the early republic, where you know, they're not enslaved, of course, but they are also not full citizens. Um, but, you know, that it's it's not there's not an easy answer, right? That that part of what women are subject to are these expectations of their gender that are based in a patriarchal logic. Right. Um, but of course, women are participating um, in in political life and exerting political power. I mean, there there's some examples of women in the state of New Jersey voting right. briefly uh, based on a uh, kind of lack of 
gendered language in the original state constitution, yeah. not out of any uh, attempt to actually enfranchise women. Um, but there but we are, should say it did when New Jersey modified its electoral laws periodically for a few decades, they kept mm -hmm. it gender neutral. Yes, so, that's that's true. Yes, they didn't take it away. Yeah, it wasn't right just <laughs> whoopsie daisy. Yes. Some women are voting. Right. Like right. credit yes. where it's due. <laughs> yes, that's fair. Yes. Uh, and and free black men as well. Um, yeah, but... I, I believe I mean, women of color theoretically could vote if they had the property qualification. Mm -hmm. For the context I believe that's for our... right. I don't know that there are any clear examples of that. Um, oh, okay. There, there was a, f a few years ago, I think it was during early COVID, there was an exhibit at the Museum of the Revolution in Philadelphia about yes. women voters. And it's not there anymore, but if your listeners are interested, I'm pretty sure they still have the digital exhibit online. Um, and it's, it's something like when women lost the vote or something like right. that. Um, and they have found... Uh, and used voter rolls from this era um, to show that there were quite a number of women actually voting. So I think it's also, I mean, whenever I'm reading or writing gender history, it's always kind of full of paradoxes. Um, mm -hmm. So the kind of central argument of my book is that women were able to exert a measure of power and agency over their lives by kind of really emphasizing their dependence or expectations of their dependence, at least, right? Whether this is something they believed or, you know, was it all just a performance is unclear, but they recognized that using the rhetoric of the expectations of women's dependence was a very effective way to convince the patriarchal state to help them out. So it, it is inherently paradoxical to argue that women were empowered by emphasizing their powerlessness, right? right. Um, so I think we can kind of think about citizenship in that way too, right? That women um, in the early Republic and the years after the revolution were really um, kind of welcomed uh, into the political realm, um, especially in kind of public events and, and some partisan events too, because some male leaders believed that their presence as women and their very feminine virtue would kind of mollify the worst impulses of partisan politics, right? And of course, later, it's that same um, kind of delicate femininity that gets them summarily pushed out of those same political events, right? So it's always tenuous, and it's always quite complicated. Yeah. And I don't mean to rush too far ahead chronologically, but your your argument really did remind me in certain ways of, and this will seem out of left field maybe, Phyllis Schlafly and <laughs> yeah. uh, conservative women who mobilized against the Equal Rights Amendment in mm -hmm. the 1960s and 70s, where they argued very much that if there was an Equal Rights Amendment and women were fully sort of de-sexed before the law, right, right. as independent citizens, that what they were really going to do was lose various benefits and protections right. they had mm -hmm. as women who were in various forms still somewhat dependent on men. And yeah. so, oh, you're going to lose spousal benefits from the government. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to lose access to single sex spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there were other, you know, sort and of the social... draft. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the draft. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, I'm kind of hearing slight echoes of that in certain ways from yes. your, your sources about, yeah. about this. Phyllis Schlafly gets a shout out in the conclusion of the book where oh, she does. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So she she's not unique uh, by any stretch. She is no. part of a long line of 
women who do basically kind of what I outline in my book, right, to suit various ends, right? Some women who are are doing this, it's a, a political strategy to expand rights. Some women like Phyllis Schlafly are quite conservative and believe that um, kind of expand, it's part of a backlash movement, right? Reacting to expansions in women's rights, uh, in her case, especially in the 60s and 70s, right? So I actually wrote a piece about a month ago um, that was in the Washington Post reacting to um, Nikki Haley's presidential announcement video where Mm. I heard her use some of the same highly gendered language to talk about, you know, what sets her apart, essentially, right? What all presidential candidates have to do is argue, why me, why now, right? And she makes the argument that she can stand up to bullies because, she wears high heels and when you kick them with high heels, it hurts more or something along the lines I'm paraphrasing. Right. So it it really struck me that this is just part of a much longer history of women having to confront these expectations of their gender in political life um, and the different ways that women do confront that or, or use it in some cases exploit it. Right. So Long before the women I talk about, there's a history there, but also throughout U.S. history as well. Um, Pretty much every women's rights movement has some iteration of this because it's impossible for women to enter the kind of largely male patriarchal sphere of politics without having to confront their gender in some way. Right. So thinking about that, I mean, uh, and this is one of the this is one of the debates that my own scholarship doesn't really engage with, but that I'm sort of most fascinated by as just a a bystander eating popcorn and and enjoying Mm -hmm. everybody's takes. Uh, And that is these questions that you're, you're engaging with in part of this turn in the revolutionary era, thinking of gender history about the, to what extent women's marginalization, you know, from, from political uh, life was, Clearly, there was part of it was by law, but how much of it was sort of by virtue of to do with property and and class in the sense that there were, you know, single women who lived independent lives and they Mm -hmm. were exceptions, but they were certainly not uncommon. And there were, you know, some cases of them in some uh, some situations that have been documented, even voting because they had, you know, being able to vote was not the norm and it was do you have enough property right and most people who had enough property were not women and they were overwhelmingly white but not Mm -hmm. always right right Right. and then to just for our listeners you of course know this the you know so goes this argument you see really around the turn into the 19th century increasingly at the at the state level and national level legislatures making explicit that biology is the price of entry for full citizenship mm-hmm. and that property matters less, but being white and being a man become yeah. explicitly part of the, the the requirement for being a full citizen. Whereas right. say when John is writing to Abigail in 1776 and he's writing to his friends saying why universal manhood suffrage is not a good idea. He's basically mm-hmm. saying, Oh no, no, you know, property is what matters And men without property have as little judgment as women because they both have no property. Right. So anyway, sorry, that was longer for the audience, not for you. Uh, 
So where do you fall, if I can phrase this now to sort of go back into a question, mm-hmm. where do you fall on this sort of, on this line in terms of how much do you think the, the revolutionary era was just kind of making what was already customary into law in terms of enshrining perhaps cultural prejudice into law and how much of this was changing based on new emphasis on biology among sort of American intellectuals? Yeah, I mean, I have this conversation with my students a lot that in some ways the revolution really takes away freedom and rights for certain groups of people, especially as we move closer towards the the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, Barbara Clark Smith's book, uh, The Freedoms We Lost, is is really good on this issue as well. So, yeah, I mean, there are ways in which there's a shift in who deserves or who is capable of having the right to vote over time. Um, But I think where the revolution is significant, right, and is um, kind of a game changer is in its its rhetoric, right? Um, That, you know, Thomas Jefferson didn't obviously mean all men are created equal because he didn't (laughs) act on that in any way. But people took that to heart. There are examples of, you know, enslaved men who fought in the revolution who then you know, right in their petition to the Massachusetts General Assembly, they, they repeat Jefferson's language, albeit with, you know, spelling errors and, you know, capital letters all over the place because they had heard it, right? They they knew it even if they couldn't read it. So it, this language is circulating and people interpret it on their own, right? And, and as I argue, right, women do this as well, right? They recognize you know, hey, my my status hasn't changed, right? I don't all of a sudden have property rights or, you know, in, in the case of Massachusetts, right? I can't necessarily get a divorce any easier than I could before. But now that this conflict has happened, right? We, th- this nation, um, as it were, d- declared independence from, from Britain. And part of the logic of that was that, you know, we are all endowed with natural and inalienable rights. So I have those too, right? They're they're different yeah. rights. Um, lots of scholars have argued this, that that there are these kind of mutually reinforcing rights of men and women. They're complementary in a lot of ways, but that women start to see these as rights, right? And and so do African Americans, and so do unpropertied white men, right? Who do again eventually get the vote. So that's I think the real significant change that we can see across the board, right? That people take the language of the revolution very seriously, even mm-hmm. if there are not immediate material changes in their circumstances. Yeah, that's well put. I think some other person smarter than me, I think, said something along the lines of like, yes, this is this is the paradox of, you know, bewigged aristocrats <laughs> using universalist mm-hmm. rhetoric yep. of liberation in order to acquire like fairly limited aims, right? Sure. But they they open that door. So Yep. Um and I think <laughs> Pandora's I, box. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Um I actually like I'm glad you mentioned Jefferson because he at one point bashes the poetry and intellect of Phyllis Wheatley. Right. And earlier in career her career, she has this public letter in 1774 to Samson Ockham, uh an indigenous uh, activist and missionary. Mm-hmm. In in which she's talking about what a later generation would call civil rights. And she has a line in there that to sort of paraphrase in 21st century speak uh, is that I don't think you need to be a philosopher to figure out the hypocrisy of slave drivers (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, talking about rights. 
And I always use that in my classes because I think Jefferson gets so much of too much of a benefit of the doubt where people will you'll hear his defenders say things like, well, he just struggled to unravel this dilemma and this puzzle as though he's doing Sudoku or this really difficult intellectual (laughs) dilemma. Like, no, he had an enormous house and a lot of people he didn't have to pay uh, worked for him because if they didn't, they'd get beat up or sold. And he profited from their misery. Yes. Like that's his contradiction. This wasn't a logic problem. He wasn't stupid. Uh, So let's let's give credit and blame where it is due. Right. And and to go along with this theme of paradoxes. Right. Of course, Edmund Morgan famously arguing that the freedom of enslavers was contingent on the unfreedom of the enslaved. Right. Jefferson's ability to think critically about universal rights really depended on his um, having, you know, the free time that he didn't have to physically right. labor and toil to make the very significant profits he did. Right. And he, it, you know, like, like you said, he gets the benefit of the doubt um, where I, I think there are many ways in which he shouldn't, right. He's not a stupid man by any stretch. Um, and he was confronted on a number of occasions by, you know, African-Americans like Phyllis Wheatley, like I'm thinking about Benjamin Banneker specifically, who writes him a letter kind of quibbling, obviously, with his ideas about racial inequality. Um, and Benjamin Banneker is, you know, a scientist. He's very bright. And he's basically saying, aren't I evidence that anyone can do anything with education regardless of race? And Jefferson basically dismisses him out of hand and says, well, you're the exception, right? And yes. is able to kind of go on his merry way. So I think those paradoxes are are always kind of present for those Whiggish folks that you say, right, who yes. um, open this Pandora's box of saying, you know, let's let's talk about universal entitlements, but not actually enact them. The best one liner about Jefferson, I actually recently read it in a, a, a book that I was I was reviewing. And the 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 author says that for Jefferson, ignorance was an opportunity throughout his career. And he just made a career out of being purposefully ignorant about all sorts of subjects and people when it was convenient for him. Right. And like he's the classic example of somebody who really did know better, but it was worth his while not to. Right. Um, I thought like that is brilliant. Like that's the best. Yeah. Description of him I've ever I've ever encountered. Self-interest trumped any kind of principles. Yeah, it it did. So most of these women you're writing about who are using their dependent status to to sort of better themselves in their lives for for very understandable reasons. But I'm wondering, thinking about revolutionary era women who really were on the, the sort of cutting edge, right, of of asserting their their rights in this revolutionary America most of them were not really challenging the gender Mm -hmm. binary per se or gender roles other than exceptional people who for example like rhode island's own public universal friend or puf the uh, the woman preacher who basically fell into a coma and awoke as a non-gendered individual who just was an entity (laughs) preaching for two decades other than people like her did you ever encounter women who not only said we deserve rights as women, but also kind of pushed back or challenged what sort of women's roles were in this revolutionary era, as opposed to later. Yeah. Um, based on, I mean, based on the sources I was looking at and the questions I was asking, there are very few women that would fit the criteria of what you're talking about. Um, 
the the sources I looked at are mainly kind of petitions to the state legislature and to the county courts. And they're often written by and submitted by people who are in desperate straits, right? They often have nowhere else to turn and they're asking for various forms of relief and aid from the state Mm. because they're having a really hard time managing the various crises of their lives, a lot of which came about as a result of the Revolutionary War, of of the war itself uh, and, and the conflict. For the most part, women are petitioning to meet their individual needs um, to to overcome these crises. Um, There's very few examples in what I found um, kind of very specifically looking for women's petitions in this period of collective action. There are Mm. certainly collective petitions in this era um, filed by sometimes residents in a town who want a bridge built or something like that, right? There are certainly collective petitions but the ones that I found are largely um, submitted individually. There okay. are examples of women working together in a number of ways. I cover this in in the book, talking about um, how women kind of built and sustained these networks of interdependence on each other, especially when the men in their lives and the state itself failed them. So there's a really fantastic example, and I'm pretty sure it's it's two women from Massachusetts, where the first woman, whose name I think is uh, Sarah Rust, she submits a petition to the Suffolk County Court asking for a divorce, and she kind of outlines the abuses of her husband, and the court does not grant her divorce. A little bit after this, there's a friend of hers uh, named Helena Baird, who submits a petition for divorce and hers is granted. So then Sarah Rust comes back after the fact and tries again and says, you know, you said no this first time. Um, My situation is really bad. And in fact, it's much worse than my friends who you just granted a divorce to. So I think really you should give me mine too. And they do, right? So there's clear evidence of these women working together, sharing strategies and, and using each other in this way to to get what they want from the state, right? And that's just Mm -hmm. one of many examples. Other than that, what I kind of talk about in the conclusion as well is that for the most part, right, because women are doing this individually, there isn't really a collective challenge against the state to push for more rights because what Mm -hmm. they're doing is trying to, you know, basically deal with the shortcomings of what the patriarchal system is supposed to be doing for them, right? That they emphasize, you know, so-and-so's husband or, you know, this form of a government is not living up to what they are expected to do for women. So you, the state, need to remedy this, right? You need to provide me with this aid because my husband is an alcoholic, whatever they're going to say. Rather than saying, you know, this whole structure is disabling us from being able to take care of ourselves. So we need to do away with it, right? They're not saying that. They're identifying individual men who aren't living up to their expectations rather than saying the whole system is broken. And are they Um, basically saying, because, you know, this is common in the early modern period, oh, uh, my husband is basically, he's being a bad man, a failure of a man. He's failing in his role as head of the household. So I need you to step in. Yeah, he is not fulfilling his duties as a husband and father and provider. Therefore, I deserve a divorce or the state ought to step in, whatever it might be. Is there Um, the related, uh, because this is something that, you know, for my students and and maybe our, you know, our listeners are less familiar with is that, you know, you get this 
for married women, just as in the same way that you you get for, say, nuns or other women in the early modern period who are essentially doing what they're supposed to do, they do, even though, although it's not full, they do have rights within their status, especially if they are doing what they're supposed to do. So mm-hmm. like, you know, married women have a right to sex from their husbands and, you know, they, they have certain rights, especially if they're doing what they're supposed to do. So by the revolutionary period, are your petitioners that you found, are they grounding their, their, their appeals partly in I'm doing my job yes. as a good wife, mm-hmm. et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the flip side. Every time they accuse their husband or the state of something, they have to come back and reiterate that they in fact are upholding every single last duty of womanhood, of being a wife, of being a mother in order to emphasize that, you know, the problem is that their husband is the one not fulfilling their duty and they are doing everything they can. There's, there's a number of women, particularly in cases of, of divorce where they say, you know, I've stuck with him for all of this time and I really wanted this to work, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, just this, this is unsustainable. Um, but there, there are also, I mean, few and far between, but some petitions where women don't do this, right. Where women oh, okay. come out swinging and criticize both their state, the state and their husbands. Right. Um, there's, there's one petition by a woman in, I think she's a South Carolina woman um, from Charleston named Margaret Brisbane. And she, um, she's one of these women whose husbands have been banished or their property has been confiscated because they've been accused of of loyalism. Um, and after the revolutionary government takes over uh, Charleston, after the British um, leave the city, they're having to deal with this, right? The absence of their financial provider. And a lot of women kind of make excuses for their husbands and use their dependents to say, you know, he was just taking care of us, right? He was just being a good father and husband. He went along with the British because, you know, maybe he thought the the war was lost, but ultimately he knew that his first responsibility was to to us. So really it's it's our fault for being dependent on him kind of. But this woman, Margaret Brisbane, really came back and and said that it was the state's fault that that <laughs> women and children are in this situation. And surprise, surprise, they don't give her what she wants. So it's mm-hmm. very clear that this this performance of dependence is kind of a, a necessary component of women getting what they want from the state. And they're they're welcome to criticize the state, but it does not work out in their favor when they do that. That makes sense in the sense. Uh... Mm-hmm. Like in the in the sense of, you know, early Americans understanding their relationship with various governing institutions as mm-hmm. somewhat contractual, right? Sure. Mm-hmm. And so where like a lot of desertion in the American Revolution and the Civil War on all sides is, you know, people will say fundamentally, well, I'm not being fed and cared for enough. Right. And so <laughs> yeah. the government mm-hmm. broke its deal with me and I yeah. don't actually owe them staying in the ranks to start. So, yep. uh, yeah, that makes sense. Did you notice a shift in the language? So I'm less familiar with these kinds of petitions that that you have encountered, but I've I've read more than you know more than my share of other kind of early modern petitions of various mm-hmm. types. And the language, especially before the American Revolution, it's overly kind of groveling, and it's mm-hmm. oh your your lowliest petitioner comes before you, and it's this very deferential language. Yes. Yep. Do you find the language becoming much more assertive by 1800? No. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. no. Yeah. And I sometimes get pushback from folks who are like, you know, basically arguing that these petitions are kind of like 
you know, they don't say this, but like Mad Libs, right? It's fill in the blank. You mm-hmm. you have the framework where you have to be, you know, supplicate yourself. Um, you you it's all about humility and deference, which is true, right? And is still the case after the United States breaks away from Britain, right? Where you're no longer uh, a subject, you're a citizen. But the the language is gendered, mm. so it's obviously much easier for women once you know the United States is independent to continue to take this deferential position, whereas men have to be kind of very careful um, in how they frame their humility to the state, right? Because they are supposed to be active citizens rather than passive um, subjects. And there there is some evidence, although this is more anecdotal, that women could be more effective in these petitions than men. That's why Mm. I, I think a lot of women whose husbands were banished after the British left, it's women who are petitioning the state for redress to their grievances rather than their husbands who are the ones banished, right? Because women are kind of seen in some ways as apolitical and outside, you know, this this battlefield between patriots and loyalists. But also there's there's an example, I think it was in, in Boston, of a man who was jailed for, and I believe he was a pacifist. He wasn't, you know, pro one side or another. He was just kind of against the war in general. And he was jailed and he had um, kind of petitioned for his his freedom, right, or clemency. And that petition was was not um, fulfilled, whereas his wife basically said, you know, I, I need my husband back. And he was freed after that. So hmm. there there are a number of cases that I've seen where husbands and wives both petition separately and wives are the ones that are successful. Interesting. You looked at a, a cross section of of kind of regions focusing on our our own home base here of, mm-hmm. of New England. Did you notice a New England difference? Were there any particular issues or patterns that were distinctive about New England women? Yeah. So what's interesting is that there's across the three places that I look at, Boston, Philadelphia, and Charleston, there's not a whole lot of regional variance in terms of the language that women were using. That's fairly consistent. But what is distinct is that women have to adapt to work within the legal structures of the colony and later state in which they are living. So Hmm. in the case of, of the Boston women, right, as I said, you know, divorce was possible for women for the entirety of the history that I study. So those numbers are actually quite consistent throughout the period 1750 to 1820. Similarly, women's petitions throughout uh, that period in in Boston are also fairly consistent, whereas in Pennsylvania, and especially South Carolina, the revolution and its ensuing crises kind of see a spike in numbers. So mm-hmm. it seems to me that women in Boston were kind of more consistently familiar with interacting directly with the patriarchal state than they would have been in places like Philadelphia and Boston, just based on the extant source material, what's available to them. And the other thing that's that's really distinct about Boston is that women who are arguing for divorces, as I said, consider that the state had a long history of considering um, marriage as a, a civil contract, as Nancy Cott has shown. So they essentially talk about their marriages in contractual terms, wherein they are the ones that have upheld every component of the marriage contract and their husbands are the ones who have broken it. And therefore it should be 
dissolved. So they talk about it in very kind of clinical terms, whereas um, women in, in Philadelphia use some of the, some of the same logic, um, but not in, in such explicit terminology. I would have also maybe wouldn't be surprised if by the American Revolution, I mean, Boston had a a disproportionate for for a colonial city a disproportionate number of war widows mm -hmm. since new england had just been such a a staging ground for all these military expeditions and you know against canada and then to the the caribbean and so the city of boston had a quite strikingly high number of war widows and then mm -hmm. also you know ill uh, and injured men who couldn't take care of themselves. And so I would, I would wonder if that sort of demographic feature shaped the, the sort of nature of a lot of women's in Boston's engagement with municipal authorities. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder about that. What is interesting too, is that, like I said, the, it's not as if there are significantly more petitions coming out of Boston mm -hmm. uh, for, from Boston women after the revolution than there were before they're for obviously for different reasons. Um, as you point to, there's a lot more um, kind of widows who are petitioning for, for pensions from the state or of course from the, from the national government as well. But demographically it would be interesting to, to trace because the majority of women I see in Charleston are elite white women who are petitioning the state. Whereas I think there's more of a, um, uh, diverse class base of the women who are submitting petitions in in Boston. Okay, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that thing where where people get put on the spot, thinking, panning out to the the thirty thousand feet. Mm -hmm. And so your your book is a bound to be a, a new a new classic in women's history during Revolutionary America. What would you hope that readers take away from your intervention into this scholarship into women in revolutionary America? Like how should we be thinking differently about revolutionary era women and their relationship with the state? Yeah, I, I think what I would like the overall takeaway to be is that there is not one way to express power in, in American history and life that mm -hmm. Despite many constraints legally, socially, culturally, economically over women's lives, they were still able to express a, a measure, of course, of power and agency over their own lives, right? In the same way that um, scholars of, of slavery and of enslaved people have been doing for decades now, right? Uncovering various forms of resistance, right? That we ought to be looking at more non-traditional expressions of power. I, I engage with a feminist scholar named Elizabeth Janeway, and she talks about the powers of the weak, right? That power isn't this binary, you know, having it and not, that there's there's a lot of different kinds of expressions of power and that sometimes it's, you know, these kind of slight pushes back, right? Small uh, measures of, of resistance, and persisting in those small measures that end up having a significant effect in the long run, or, you know, in the case of these women, having the recognition that despite the fact that they are still dependent on men in the state in many ways, they recognize themselves as rights-bearing individuals, which is a critical step forward in the kind of long history of the women's rights movement in the United States. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I think 
you and I actually have very similar interests, even more than I realized, even mm. though I work in an earlier time than you. I mean, my scholarship is, is has deeply been about essentially how different groups within the British Empire and these early modern empires managed to make these imperial systems that are very much not designed for people like them mm-hmm. work for right. them anyway, to some degree right. or another. Yeah. And to me, that's always been this fascinating journey of exploration, if you will, not to make Mm -hmm. it sound too sappy, but just sort of, well, especially these early modern empires are are these very kind of chaotic, poorly organized contraptions in in most cases. And that's less, I think, how most of us think about the early, the, the revolutionary American state, although maybe we should. It's certainly designed to benefit some citizens more than others. Right. But also in terms of how well organized those patriarchal systems are. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, in terms of the, you know, how how seamless how seamless the barriers are and such. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people doing this kind of work in like every era of, of American history, which mm-hmm. is really great to kind of really consider people in their own historical moment and what they were able to do despite these confines is is really great. And cre- and to do credit to the the women right. that you're studying too, sometimes doing credit to them also involves, oh right, they don't ne- they're not even necessarily asking for what right. maybe we hope they are or would right. like to think they are. Yes. You know, sometimes yeah. an angry scullery maid just really wanted the day off and they're not <laughs> striking a blow for universal liberty or something. Right, right. Yeah. They have much more kind of practical issues. They really don't have the time uh, or the energy to, you know, create a movement that's going to overthrow the patriarchal system. Right. They just need to make sure that they have a place to live and food to eat and some way to take care of their children. Right. So that we have to adjust our expectations, right? Where we don't want to look at the revolution and say, you know, the rhetoric is right there. Why aren't you fighting for more? Whereas the the systems of power are such that they were, they were fighting for what was possible, not impossible in that moment, right? That you yeah. can't just blow up the system, that it takes a lot more hard work, unfortunately, to, to break it down. I think honestly, that's why one of the big reasons the New Jersey some women voting doesn't get as much attention mm. is as it has been uh, argued by again more uh, more intelligent folk than I on this, but that it doesn't it's not a story that fits well in any real narrative, especially since when New Jersey takes away the right of propertyed women to vote, there's no real evidence of complaint or protest, right? And the fact that there isn't. It just doesn't feel good. It doesn't sit right with anybody who's going like, yeah, get them, ladies, like go and vote. Right. Right. Uh, right. Because they're they're just not behaving in a way that we would like them to. And so nobody's quite sure what to do with it. Right. Which, yeah. I, I think there's a class argument to be made there, of course, that yes. the, the women who were voting were, you know, in favor of upholding the status quo more generally. So that's part of it, too. But oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, it wasn't about it wasn't about yay. Uh, this is why the Federalists were such shabby advocates for either <laughs> the rights of women or Black Americans, even mm-hmm. though they were maybe less invested in disenfranchising women or Black Americans as such per se. 
Right. It's just the Federalists weren't interested in lots of people voting, period. <laughs> right. And so they cared more about class than the other stuff. And if a handful of women or people who weren't white happened to have enough property to participate, that didn't bother them much. Mm-hmm. But they weren't saying the problem is not enough women are voting or something like that. Um, right. Which is what makes... So- I would argue what makes history so fascinating, but also frustrating is that mm-hmm. the people of the past, even the ones we like, they just don't, they rarely do what we want them to do Yeah, from whatever our smug, comfortable, modern perch is, which is not to say, therefore, Thomas Jefferson, it's totally fine. You just, you know, we're solving the puzzle. No, but it just also means, yes, even people we admire. And then we look at what they think about a particular issue and we go, huh? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I I always tell my students that you're bound to be disappointed if you look hard enough at a historical figure's life. You're not going to like everything. No. Um, even if, you know, there's, there's maybe some exceptions. Like I have, I have a few students who, you know, love talking about Harriet Tubman. Like, yeah, we might be good with Harriet Tubman, but other sure. than that, everybody is incredibly flawed. Yeah. I mean, Harriet Tubman, I don't, I'm not trying to like, she's great. I'm not trying mm-hmm. to bash her, mm-hmm. but also I just don't think she said very much on the record. Um, that's, Harriet, that's part of it, right? Is that yeah. we don't have a lot of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If she had a sub stack, oh, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure she would have weighed in on some stuff. You mm-hmm. know, I remember I was, I'll, I'll close with this. I remember I was reading a book on 19th century minstrel shows. Mm. And, you know, besides being offensive, they just said a lot about a lot of things. Right. And Frederick Douglass was mentioned in there as going to minstrel shows sometimes. And he criticized a lot of the really racist ones, but other ones, which I still consider to be racist, he was just sort of critiquing and saying like, oh, they were doing an okay job. And I was like, no, mm-hmm. Frederick Douglass, no, <laughs> stop it. Yeah. Don't go to these terrible shows. Yeah. Um, You know, what does he care what I think? He's, right. he's dead and he accomplished <laughs> more than I ever will. So right. good job. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like don't meet your heroes, right? Don't investigate your yeah. uh, historical heroes too much yeah. or you'll you're bound to be disappointed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on that random note, we of course uh all the all the listeners should go and get your book Independence: Women in the Patriarchal State and Revolutionary America wherever fine books are sold. Uh, mm-hmm. definitely not Amazon, but all the other <laughs> places. Local, yes, get your library to carry it. Yeah. Uh, Jackie, what besides your excellent book that would make a make a great Mother's Day and Father's Day and all the other gifts? Is there something somebody else has worked on a performance, a book, uh, something that you would recommend to our listeners? Yes. A book that came out uh, late last year on kind of examining the pseudosciences of physiognomy and phrenology and this How, is the skull measuring stuff. Yes, exactly. Uh huh. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And and how these uh, pseudosciences were used to um, debate questions about race and gender and class. Right. Um, it, the book is called Beauty and the Brain, uh, which is a great title: The Science of Human Nature in Early America, uh, and it's by Rachel Walker, who is a history professor at the University of Hartford. Right. Um, so. It's it's really interesting, and I think one of the reasons why it's so important is because you know scholars often dismiss phrenology and uh, physiognomy as these kinds of junk sciences, um, but people took them seriously, right? Um, both as as an element of popular culture, but also in trying to 
kind of explain human nature and divide people along lines of, of race, class, and gender. So it's it's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of really compelling figures in this book um, and, and really well-written. So that's uh, Beauty and the Brain, uh, The Science of Human Nature in Early America. Ooh, fascinating. That mm-hmm. sounds like a good read. Yeah. All right. That will go up on all of our media feeds. So Jackie Beatty, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we will speak again. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That's our show. Be sure to follow and review us on whatever platform you're listening in on so the mainly fandom can spread. And don't miss the upcoming release of the recording of our banger of a live show at the Maine Historical Society that we had this past August about a murder, an execution, and a religious revival all coming together in colonial Maine. That's next time on Mainly History.